Today's lesson is a very simple lesson, but a lesson that we need to be reminded of from time to time. In fact, this lesson this morning is a part of a two-part lesson that we're going to be doing. This morning we're going to be talking about five things God cannot do, and next Sunday, the Lord willing, uh, we're going to talk about five things that God cannot know. So today we're going to be talking about five things that God cannot do, and then the Lord willing, next Sunday, the second part of this message, five things that God cannot know. But as we think about this idea, five things God cannot do, I want you to think about, first of all, a very popular uh, children's song that we sing at Vacation Bible School. Uh, My oldest son, David, when he leads this particular song, he gets very animated when he leads it, and the kids love it. But the song goes like this, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. He made the trees, he made the seas, he made the elephants too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so great, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are His, the rivers are His, the skies are His handiworks too. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. We serve a God that is a big God. We serve a God that is a powerful God. He is the omnipotent one, meaning that he is all-powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. In fact, the passage that Eric read for us just a few moments ago from Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17, where I've put emphasis, it says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Just a few verses later in the same chapter, God acknowledges this very thing that has been said when he says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? But folks, this morning, the truth of the matter is, there are some things that God cannot do. Now, I'm not trying to create a conundrum here and bring up something that uh, sometimes atheists do when they say, well, if God's so powerful, can he make a rock that's so big he can't pick it up? Well, that's just a conundrum and makes no sense. But I think you're going to discover uh, the truth of the matter today. There are some things that God cannot do, but it's still in keeping with his nature and still in keeping with his power. I'm going to share with you this morning five things that God cannot do. And the very first thing I want you to think about this morning is that God cannot sin. God is pure. God is holy. God is righteous. It is impossible for God to sin because God is the absolute uh, principle about what sin is not and what righteousness is. In fact, the Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44... I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. God is the epitome of holiness. Everything that is holy is God. 
And therefore, God, he does not sin. God cannot even be in the presence of sin. Everything about God is pure and holy. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2 says, There is no one holy like, like unto the Lord. In other words, we're not dealing with a mere man here. We're not dealing with something uh, that we can compare ourselves to other than the fact that we need to understand and appreciate the fact that God is the Holy One. He is right in everything that He does. He is pure in everything that He does. He is holy in everything that He does. He has never made a mistake. He has never done anything wrong. He has never uh, misunderstood something. He has never ever sin because God cannot sin. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 says, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God is so sinless that he cannot even look at sin. Sin is something that cannot be in his presence. In other words, there has to be a separation between God and sin, because God is totally sinless. He is pure, righteous, and holy. So first of all, as we think about five things that God cannot do, God cannot sin. It is totally against His nature. But as we think about this, if God cannot sin, then it would make sense to us that obviously God cannot lie. If God cannot sin, then obviously he can't be guilty of one of the sins, especially one of the sins that he detests and hates. Therefore, there's something else that God cannot do. He cannot lie. The writer of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter 6 these words, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among his brothers. Here are seven things that the Scripture tells us that the Lord hates. In fact, they are detestable to him. The King James Version says they are an abomination to him. These are things that turns his stomach, that, that just disgust him. And notice that in the text, two different times, he mentions lying. In verse 17, he says, a lying tongue. Verse 19 says, a false witness who pours out lies. By the way, we are living in a day and age where it seems to be easier and easier for people to tell lies. We need to understand as far as God is concerned that a lie is something that turns his stomach. It goes to the very nature of God. It's something that he hates. But we need to understand that God cannot lie because this is something that is detestable to him. This is something that he hates. And so we need to understand that since God doesn't lie, that means that whatever he says is true. Every promise that you read in the Bible is true because God can't lie. Every threat, every punishment that you read in the Bible is true because God cannot lie. Every word He has given us in His Bible, because of the inspiration of Holy Spirit, men wrote His word so we can know the very words of God. 
Every single word in that book is true. Why? Because God can not lie. In fact, we would add to the, the scripture we just looked at, this scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29. Who is the glory of Israel does not lie nor change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God is someone that once he says something, you can take it to the bank. It is true because God does not lie. He does not even make a mistake in the things that he says where he has to change his story, if you will. And moving into the New Testament, we see these words. It is impossible for God to lie. So we've discovered two things this morning. We've discovered that God cannot sin and God cannot lie. But here's something we really need to consider now. The third thing is simply this. Oh, I left off this one verse here, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus is God's representation here on this earth. And that's why he refers to himself as the truth, because God is the truth. Everything he says is true. But we need to add a third thing to this, and that is God cannot ignore sin. God cannot ignore sin. He cannot take your sin and just act like it doesn't happen. He cannot take your sin and, and put it in a closet. He cannot in, unthink any of your sinful thoughts. He cannot undo any of your sinful deeds. He, he cannot take your sins and, and put it under a rug somehow or another. But instead, God has to look sin square in the face and understand and appreciate the fact that it is indeed sin and something needs to be done about it. Keep in mind, once again, that God cannot sin, that God detests sin. There are things that God hates. We mentioned that God cannot lie. The reason why he cannot lie is because sin and lying being one of those sins is detestable to him. But if God's going to be kept in his nature in the right kind of way that we need to look at God, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that God cannot ignore sin. He can't just simply look the other way. He can't just pretend like it didn't happen. But instead, each and every time one of us sins, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is none righteous, no, not one. God has to do something about it. God cannot ignore it. In fact, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, going all the way back, to those first two people on the face of the earth, a man by the name of Adam and a woman by the name of Eve. You remember how the book of Genesis tells us that they committed the very first sin when they disobeyed God after being tempted by Satan and partook of that forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when that happened, God just didn't say, oh, well, you know, my creation, they, they did something wrong. I'll just overlook it today. God didn't say, oh, look what they did. I'll just pretend like they didn't happen. it didn't happen. What happened? Well, the Bible tells us that God came down to where they were and confronted them with their sin. In fact, notice what the text says. God came down and said, where are you? Now, what was he trying to do? He was trying to get them to confront their sin and realize that they were hiding from God. They had done something that was so shameful 
and so ugly and so terrible in the fact that they had sinned against God Almighty, they had sinned against their Creator, they had sinned against the One who sustains them with every good thing, that they were hiding in shame. And God asked this question, to get them to realize what they were doing. But then He goes on and confronts them. He says, who told you that you were naked? In other words, you know something now you didn't know before. How did you come to that knowledge? The only way you could have come to that knowledge is the fact that you've sinned, that you've done something that you're not supposed to have done. In fact, he goes on and says, Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? In other words, do you realize what you have done? Do you realize that you have disobeyed me, that you have done the one thing, the one thing I told you you could not do? And then finally he asks them the question in the same uh, verse, in the same chapter, he says, what is this that you have done? But God didn't ask these questions because God didn't know. God knows everything. God is omniscient. He knows even the thoughts of our heads. The reason why he came down and asked these, these, these questions is to show Adam and Eve that he wanted to confront them with their sins and this was all for their benefit. When he asked that last question, what is this that you have done? Do you realize the implication of that passage? Because of that one sin, because of that one disobedience, because of that one time disobeying God, They ushered into this world sin and death that all mankind was going to have to deal with now for the rest of history. Adam and Eve, do you realize what you have done? You have opened Pandora's box with all the heartache and all the pain and all the death that comes from breaking my law. God says, I cannot ignore sin. When sin, is, when sin happens, then it's going to be confronted. Something's going to have to be dealt with. In fact, the Bible goes on and tells us, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Because of our sins and because of the fact that God cannot ignore sin, the fact that He cannot sweep it under a rug or hide it in a closet or pretend like it doesn't happen, sin has to be confronted. And therefore there is a day coming, a great day coming, when He is going to judge each and every one of us. And because of our sins and because of the fact that God absolutely cannot ignore sin, Punishment is going to be the result. Sin always brings forth death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. In fact, one other text to think about, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. And therefore, God cannot ignore sin. But thankfully, this adds something else to this. What's the fourth thing? God cannot save you any other way 
but by Jesus Christ. You see, God is a God that loves us. We are His creation. We are made in His image. And God, even though we don't deserve it, even though we have done nothing to earn it, even though by every right, and it's so unfair when I think about this, we deserve to spend an eternity in hell, God in His mercy and His love and His grace has provided a way of escape for mankind. Even though we are people who, because of our sin, have one foot in the grave, God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God provided a way. But folks, we need to understand and appreciate the fact as we talk about things God cannot do, He cannot save you but by any other way than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way. There's no plan B. There's no other option. This is the only way that God has decreed for mankind to be saved. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 and verse 6, He says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is echoing what God cannot do. God cannot save us by any other way than by Jesus Christ. Why is that? God being who He is, why could He not come up with another way? Well, because of the very nature of who God is. Because of the very fact that God cannot sin, that He cannot lie, that He cannot ignore sin, He had to come up with another way. We had to come up with one way to save mankind, and there was no other way. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. Let's go back to when God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin. What did He end up doing? They had tried to cover their own nakedness, but they were unsuccessful because man, in a sense, in a symbolic sense, can't cover up his sins. He can't do anything about his sins. And Adam and Eve couldn't do anything to take care of the situation they were in. So for the first time in history, we read about something dying. Some animals died so God could provide a way to cover up what Adam and Eve had done to cover up the sin they committed, cover up their nakedness. For the very first time in history, there was a sacrifice that was made. And that set in motion the principle that's going to be the case all throughout God's Word, that because of sin, something has to die. In fact, how does the Bible put it? In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because of God's righteousness, because of His holiness, because of His purity, God demands that something dies to take the place of the sin. Remember what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 18.20, The soul that sinneth, it must die. Why? Because God can't ignore sin. It's detestable to Him. It's repulsive to Him. And He can't ignore it. So there has to be the shedding of blood. Uh, But we've got a problem. Uh, The text goes on in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. It says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In the Old Testament, because of the sins of the people, 
Oftentimes a lamb was killed. Oftentimes a goat was killed. Oftentimes even a big bull was killed. But no matter how small that animal is or no matter how big that animal is, there's no way in the world that animal is going to take my place. That animal's not me. That animal's not made in God's image. That animal doesn't have a soul. That animal is just simply innocent. And yet, somehow or another, I feel like that my sins could be imparted upon that and somehow or another that would justify God's justice when he says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. God had to have a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, and this was his only sacrifice if he was going to save mankind. In fact, in the same chapter, a little bit later on, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus Christ, had offered for all, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now look at this passage for a moment and digest it in your minds for a second. He first of all goes back to the Old Testament and makes us think about the high priest and how that whenever he offers sacrifices of sins for his people, that priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself. The reason being he was a sinful man. But those sacrifices did not do him any good. He kept offering those sacrifices. He kept offering those sacrifices. But because they were animal sacrifices and because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, what he was doing was caught in a trap. It was almost like Groundhog Day. He was repeating the same thing over and over again and accomplishing nothing. Why? Because those animals weren't the right kind of sacrifice that God needed to take the place of a human who had sinned. So God sent His perfect Son to this earth. This perfect Son who became a man just like you and I. This perfect Son who now has a soul. This perfect Son who was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. He was the perfect sacrifice to take man's place. So the text says, but when this priest, this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. In other words, this is God's one and only way. God cannot save you any other way except by his son Jesus Christ. It is the only way it can work. It's the only thing that can, sac- that can satisfy God's justice and satisfy the fact that he cannot ignore sin. In fact, Peter puts it this way. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. God says, I can't save you any other way but by Jesus Christ. Well, here's your last and final point. 
The fifth thing that God cannot do, God cannot save those who refuse to believe. Because he sent his only begotten son to die here on this earth, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that God is not going to save us if we do not believe in the atoning power of his son, Jesus Christ. Since Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, then we've got to put our faith and trust in him. In fact, the Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, and also verse 17, What does it say? It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Paul goes on and says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him that they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul says we need to make sure we understand that if we're going to call upon the Lord for salvation, that salvation is going to come about by believing in Jesus Christ. But we also need to understand that this faith is not some kind of miraculous thing that just comes down upon us, but it's something that we learn about by studying God's Word. In fact, verse 17 of the same chapter says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. As we study about the life of Jesus Christ, as we study about God's nature, as we study about God's atonement through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation that comes from it, it should lead us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, that God rose Him again on the third day, and He is now in heaven making intercession for us. We need to put our faith and trust in Him because God says, I cannot save you by any other means. Back in the same chapter earlier, Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 9. God tells us, if you will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and you will believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, you're going to be saved. In fact, he goes on in verse 10, he says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but by confession with the mouth, Salvation has come to you. In other words, God cannot save you any other way by, but except by having faith in Him. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. But we need to understand that faith means more than just simply acknowledging the fact that there is a God, that there is someone named Jesus Christ, and he died for my sins. But that faith should lead us toward obedience and a changing of our lives in respect of what God has done for us. In fact, Paul reminds us in Acts 17 and verse 30, there was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Repentance in the Greek is the Greek word metaneo, and it pictures, if you will, a word picture of a big ship, a sailing ship going across the ocean, and then it decides to change course and turn completely around and start heading in another direction. That's the word picture of metaneo. A change has been made, a complete turning has been made, and because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are heading in the direction of Satan and hell, but because of what Christ has done, we have turning around and made 
heaven our gold. We have changed our lives and are heading in his direction now. But also we understand that it doesn't stop there. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that very first gospel sermon, the first time that God sent to mankind the message of Jesus Christ and how that mankind was going to be saved. You remember how that Peter in his sermon talked about how that Jesus Christ performed great and wonderful miracles, how he fulfilled the prophecies of the prophets, how he resurrected from the dead, and how, well, he gets to the conclusion of his sermon. And he says simply this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that you have taken the same Jesus Christ and you have crucified him. The text tells us that when they heard this and they realized what they had done, when they realized they had crucified the very Son of God, it says they were pricked in their hearts and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter tells them in verse 38 to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. In other words, you believe in Jesus Christ, but that's not the end of it now. You need to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. People in that day understood what Peter meant. So verse 41 says, And they that gladly received his word were then baptized. They understood that because of what God had done for them, they needed to obey his commands and responded to Peter's message. But make sure you understand that God cannot save those who refuse to believe. God has given you the opportunity to become a Christian, to be saved from your sins. The decision, of course, is going to be up to you. But notice what we've looked at today. Notice what it says in this passage right here. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That's a very, very sad scripture. He was talking directly to the Jews, but he's also talking to us. We can tell by Scripture that Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived as a man and died for us so that we can have salvation. Eternal life is in our grasp. The very thing that God wants to do for us, save us, is right there in front of us. But it's up to us because God cannot save us if we're not willing to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, Let's combine everything together today and see what we've learned when we think about what God cannot do. First of all, we need to understand that God cannot sin. God, His very nature, is pure and holy and righteous. God cannot sin. God cannot ignore sin. God cannot hide sin somewhere and say it doesn't exist, but God has to confront our sin as we do. And we know that God cannot save us by any other means but by Jesus Christ. And we know that the bottom line is that God has done his part. Now it's up to us to do our part. And we know all these things are true because God cannot lie. Many years ago, there was a famous court case during the presidency of Andrew Jackson 
There was a man by the name of George Wilson who robbed a postal train. And in the process of robbing that postal train, he killed one of the guards that were on that train. He, of course, was arrested. He went to trial. He was condemned, and he was put on death row to be hanged for his crimes and his sins. It so happened that during the presidency of Andrew Jackson, there was this first time that we started having a public opinion change about capital punishment and about how criminals should be treated and should, it was it right that someone should be put to death for their crimes. And so a groundswelling of, of public outrage started coming up about capital punishment. And since George Wilson's was to, uh, death was to be the next one that was to be uh, taken care of, people petitioned, petitioned Andrew Jackson. And finally, Andrew Jackson, because of the will of the people, decided to pardon George Wilson. But here's the strange thing that happened. When... The warden came to George Wilson and says, you've got a presidential pardon. You no longer have to die. You know what George Wilson did? He says, I don't want it. I refuse it. I'm going to ignore it. Well, that put everything into a quandary. What do you do about a condemned prisoner who has been offered pardon and he doesn't accept it? And it went through the lower courts and finally it ended up in the Supreme Court. Folks, this is a real case. You can look it up online. It ended up in the Supreme Court. And finally, the Chief Justice, John Marshall, issued this particular ruling. A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. A few days later, George Wilson was taken out into the courtyard of the prison. A rope was put around his neck, and he hung there until he died. Folks, that's an amazing story. But you know what a more amazing story is? The fact that we can be pardoned for our sins. The very fact that God loved us so much that even though we didn't deserve it, even though it just boggles the mind, the unfairness of it all, that He would send His only begotten Son so that we can have eternal life. That pardon's out there. But you have to accept it. If you don't accept it, And all you can look forward to is an eternity in hell. But thanks be to God, we'll put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we can spend eternity in heaven. To echo the words of the Apostle Paul. I mean, the the words that were told to the Apostle Paul in, in Acts 22 and verse 16 by Ananias the preacher. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Won't you come? Won't you stand as we sing this invitation song?